Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight analysis to bring to you all things that you want to talk about in the game we all love. I'm delighted to say that Duncan Castles, as always, joins me. But even more so to say that good friend of the Transformative Podcast, Glenn Murray, a man once called the thinking man's Peter Crouch, also joins us today to talk about all things in the game. Welcome, Glenn. Hello, guys. How are you? <laughs> very, very good. Very good. Thank you. Uh, I was going to say you're the dancing man's Peter Crouch as well, but I've never seen you dance, so... That's the first time I've heard that nickname, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I was go- uh, I'm, I'm sure there's much worse out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, if there is, I'm sure our listeners will certainly be texting it and putting it on Twitter for us, and we shall let you know. Uh, as always, uh, for this moment in time, we still find ourselves in this twilight zone of the global pandemic. In which case, we are um, very grateful to Glenn for um, coming on to the podcast to give us the player's view of just uh, what it's like to cope with the both physical and mental attributes of being involved in a lockdown when actual fact you're used to being a person who is extremely um, active and involved both uh, mentally and physically, in the game itself. Glenn, I said I described it as a twilight zone. Uh, you've been in the game quite some time, and I, I, I'm, I'm not even going to say to you, have you ever known anything like it? Because I'm sure you haven't. But how are you dealing with uh, just the day-to-day aspects of not being able to play, not being able to train, and with no light at the end of the tunnel regarding when the game and when the league will start again. Yeah, I mean, well, I think first and foremost, it's 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 uh, it's a tragic situation we're in, and um, we need to keep people safe and healthy before we even think about resuming football. But as far as as us, the players are concerned, it's. Um, Business as usual, just individually, we we need to try and maintain some sort of fitness, um, more of a base level fitness, more than more than anything, so that when we are able to reconvene and and join back up together, that our bodies are able to cope with um, sort of heavy training sessions. Because I think when we do go back, we're likely going to have a small period, two, three, maybe four weeks, um, sort of a a mini pre-season to get that sharpness back. So as long as we can keep that base level fitness and keep our muscles, um, sort of keep them active and, um, and, and keep on top of our weights and things, then we should be in, in good physical condition to go back and, and then you'll sharpen up with the team. It's it's the uh, it's the sharpness that you lose. It's the day in day out sort of sharpness of, of playing five sides and and that physical contact. Um, a, a lot of clubs obviously um, didn't split until after Brighton. I think um, we we sort of sat down as a group 
I think our game got called off on the 14th of March against Arsenal after um, after their manager got the COVID-19 disease and um, we went in on the Monday, so the 16th of March and we, we, we sat down and, and we, we, we chatted about the situation we were in and... and, and um, and what was going to happen? And um, and it was it was it was very candid. We all we all sat there along with the coach and staff, and we all aired our views. Um, at the time, my children were still in school, um, so for me, going into the club wasn't too big of an issue. Uh, and I, I don't think the UK realised sort of the severity of the problem we we were facing. Um, but then in the same room, there was another another teammate of mine that, that was living with his elderly parents who um, who have health complications themselves. And, and he felt it uh, a, a problem to come into the club um, and see 25, 35 faces every day and, and come into contact with these people when his parents were self-isolating at home already. So we took the very sensible option uh, and the very early option, I think, uh, as far as other Premier League clubs were concerned, to to um, to end training there and sort of see see what the future held, and, and we would just keep keep in contact remotely and uh, and and play it by there, and uh, and still here we are um, creeping up on May, and we still haven't reconvened. So that, that's five weeks now, Glenn. Um, how much physical work are you doing each day, and um, and what kind of ball work are you able to do to try and keep yourself in a position where you 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 hope to be ready to to start again whenever the Premier League says it's it's possible to do so. So I think again, it really boils down to the individual. Um, every every football player is different. I um, physical ability. Um, as far as um, sort of how much running they need to do, how, how how on top of their fitness they need to keep. I mean, let's 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 be honest. A nineteen-year-old boy is not going to take as much as much condition as, <laughs> as I am at the minute. So um, <laughs> everyone's different, and 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 so, some people are natural athlete, athletes, some aren't. Uh, then technically, some people need to touch the ball every day. Others don't. Personally, I'm one that doesn't really need to touch the ball every day. I quite enjoy a break from the ball. Um, okay. I find it can have an effect that makes me a bit hungrier to play football um, rather than doing it every single day. Um, it, it makes me miss it, uh, which which makes me very um, sort of excited to get back on the grass and very eager to, to get back with the ball. Um, and then... Sort of when we, when we broke up um, on on that Monday, we we've been getting together on an app called Zoom uh, as a squad and doing certain um, certain workouts. So some guys have obviously got home gyms and things. Some guys haven't. So who he- whoever didn't have any equipment at home, the club made sure to send them a bike um, and some weights so that we could do these sessions all together on Zoom. So that's been good, um, not only for our physical fitness, but our mental well-being as well. It's um, it's very good to be able to sort of log online and, and see 25 friends uh, and have a bit of a, a bit of chat, uh, whose hair's getting longer, who's, who's shaved it <laughs> off. Uh, that's always a good surprise when you log on, but it's just nice to 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 get together on, on that on that social level as well and, and sort of um, especially for... 
for some players that that may be living on their own, young lads living on their own, maybe not in their own country, it can, it can be a really difficult time. I'm not saying you take it for granted, but you know, every day you go in certain time, but a breakfast, training, post, yeah, you, know, you maybe have a, a team meeting, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It must be kind of a little bit odd to not have that interaction on a daily basis as well, of course, as um, playing and going away, staying in a hotel or whatever. I mean, it's a very kind of, uh, well, unusual scenario for you guys. Yes, it is. It's um, it, it, it's very strange. Um, obviously, we spend a lot of time together. I mean, we, we virtually live in each other's pockets and, and I think... That's us as a Brighton. I think even even teams higher above us that they may be even more um, more so live in each other's pockets. They have to travel to European games. Some managers I've had managers in the past that have made us stay in a hotel before away games and home games. Uh, fortunately, we're not on that regime at the minute at Brighton, but I know some of the uh, the bigger clubs are. Um, so when they're playing two games a week, they're obviously in a hotel twice a week, sometimes three times a week, um, away from their families. Um, and it, it does become your second family. So it does, it leaves a big gap in your life. Um, it's, it's, it's very strange. Um, obviously when you go in to training every day or when you sign at a new club, you've, you've instantly got 25, um, acquaintances, uh, with the majority of them being friends. Obviously you don't get on with everyone, uh, but everyone's, um, uh, polite and, um, and courteous to one another. So yeah, it, 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 it leaves a big gap uh, walking in that dressing room and, and saying morning to everyone. And some guys might be feeling low. Um, the group will pick them up and vice versa. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's almost like a second family. And, and for some guys, it's their first family. Um, I know some of the foreign guys that are over here on their own, away from their families, they, they view the club as a family, um, especially whilst they're living away from home. I was going to say there must be a range of, of family circumstances and accommodation circumstances through the squad. So the you know the lockdown is obviously going to be different for different people across um, the whole community, the UK. But it, you get similarities in the situation with a football club in that some players will be with their family and others will be foreign players who are um, perhaps living in a hotel or a or a or a flat or a smaller um, accommodation where they don't have the, the the same opportunity to do, for example, ball work that um, that you would do if you're living in your house. Yeah, I mean it, it is. I mean, and I don't want to to sound as though um, it, it's only footballs in this situation, but obviously we are talking about footballs this moment in time. We we understand that we're in a very privileged position. Um, and that we're lucky. Uh, we're obviously still getting paid and things. Um, but as, as far as far as we are concerned, yeah, it, it, it can be difficult, um, especially to, to 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 get that ball work and things. And I think, like like we've touched on there, it, it's it's even more difficult for young lads that are living away from home, maybe only able to FaceTime family. Um, they're not seeing their usual friends, i.e., other footballers, every day, and, and and going out for meals, which 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 keeps them going, and and that that social side of it keep, keeps them sort of ticking over uh, mentally. And to be stuck in in a small a small flat um, with no garden and things, it it can be difficult for them, especially when they're trying to keep fit. You mentioned footballers' pay there, and that 
during the course of this pandemic has become a, a national topic of discussion, um, courtesy of the, the health secretary um, deciding that he, he should uh, force footballers to take pay cuts. Um, I believe you've been involved in, in well, both the, the charitable side of that and discussions internally at Brighton in terms of uh, wage deferrals. Yes, I have. And I felt very let down with what Matt Hancock had to say uh, on that evening when he when he outed footballers and, and said that we need to take a pay cut and we need to do more uh, in the communities and things because um, after his comments, uh, the Place Together Fund came out and it looks like it was a reaction to his comments, but it, it certainly was not. Uh, that was not the case at all. Um, we were already putting our heads together and, and working out the best way that we could help um, the nation. And like I say, it, it was very frustrating for him to come out and make out like we weren't doing anything when in fact behind the scenes we were working very hard to do it. And it, it's difficult to bring 20 football clubs together. Uh, but but thankfully we've managed to do that. Um, and now the place together funds up and running and it's it's um it's donating to to uh, NHS charities uh, and and everyone in need at this time Glenn, i don't think many people appreciate just how difficult it is um in a dressing room where you've got multiple nationalities multiple languages multiple responsibilities uh with regards to looking after families Etc. Etc. When it comes to wages, I think there's a general view which is, oh, they earn a lot of money, and therefore they should be contributing to the national cause, etc. Etc. Without actually understanding what goes on um, for a footballer and the responsibilities footballers have, etc. Etc. As I said, you 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 said you you've been you're part of the leaders group at Brighton, so therefore you've been at the forefront of negotiations within the club. I'm sure also involved in the um, the negotiations with the captains, which Lewis Dunk has been leading on behalf of Brighton Ove Albion as well. Can you give us an idea of just how complex that is, just to let people know that it's not very straightforward where you just say right we're all gonna you know do this do that well first and foremost you've, you've got a, a dressing room of usually uh well there's 25 men named in in the in the um in the premier league and then you've usually got at least another six with maybe a few under 23s involved to say there's sort of upwards of 33 people uh, and everyone's situation and scenarios are extremely difficult. Um, obviously, yes, we all hear about the well-paid ones, the the, the so-called stars of the clubs that, that, uh, that are financially doing very well. But we don't hear too much about the young lads that have just stepped up from the under-23s or, or boys from uh, different nations from all over the world with different cultures and, and, and different ways of dealing with their money um, who have a, 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 a different way of, of sharing their money compared to maybe uh, uh, an English an English guy. Uh, I mean, just everyone is, is so different and uh, different. And it's such a complex and, and 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 hard situation to deal with because 
obviously everyone is on different sums of money. It's not it's not a, a spread a spread wage throughout the squad. So everyone knows what everyone's on. Everyone's extremely different, and everyone spends their money differently as well. Um, I, I know for a fact that I've got teammates that send money home, and 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 uh, large chunks of it as well. So. Right away, they're giving without without needing to get any um, any exposure. That they they don't want exposure or or anything for it. They're they're happy with what they're doing behind the scenes. Uh, they do, do, they don't need to uh, to be in the press shouting about it. Um, and yeah, it's 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 just a really complex situation to sort. I mean, because somebody's in the in the twenty five man squad, it doesn't mean that sort of he isn't paying his mum and dad's mortgage for them. It's it's just. Yeah, it, it's such a difficult situation. How long did it take in terms of negotiating that the complexities of that situation to come to a solution that worked for everyone at Brighton in terms of um, taking a pay cut and across the Premier Leagues in terms of setting up the Players Together Fund and, and agreeing the percentage of salary that would go towards it? So, firstly, the um, Brighton we haven't come to an agreement with the club yet. Uh, we are in advanced talks with them at the moment. And uh, all I can say on that matter is that um, the, the full first team squad uh, are willing to help. Um, and we're trying to work out the best situation for, for both parties um, for it to be amicable and for it to be uh, beneficial for both parties and, and, and for both happy, uh, parties to be comfortable with that. Um Secondly, on the Place Together Fund, that has been headed up by Jordan Henderson at Liverpool, who's done a fantastic job for such an amazing cause. And really, there was no pressure on on, on, on that particular fund. It was sort of what you can give is brilliant. He understood and appreciated, obviously, the place for Liverpool. Uh, his squad's a lot different to, say, us or the boys at Norwich. Uh, their pay's a lot different as well, so... He made it very clear from the from the outset that that whatever you could give was much appreciated, but don't feel under pressure to to sort of break your neck. But everyone has been very willing to give uh, what they can, and and hopefully we can come to it to a, a good amount to to help the charities. And do you know where that's at at the moment in terms of the amount that's been raised? No, I'm not. I'm not entirely sure, but I, I know that um, that other other people are putting into the funds uh, other than footballers. So the PFA, I think, are going to help and. Yeah, it, it it should it should be a good grand total, and uh, it should um, Matt Hancock should be happy. Well, it was, it was interesting the other day when Matt Hancock was challenged as to whether he would be taking a pay cut on his um, substantial ministerial salary. He uh, he said he would he would just be working very hard, and he wouldn't be following the example of footballers and following the example of politicians in other countries such as the the Prime Minister in New Zealand and the, the President in South Africa who, who've donated substantial um, amounts of their salary to uh, to combating COVID um, in their own countries. Yes, yeah, and I, I always feel as though um, if you haven't done your little bit, whatever that is, then you shouldn't really be pointing the finger, to be honest. And And, and all I can say is that Everyone down here at Brighton have already donated um, a couple of times um, vastly to to local charities. So we're happy with what we're doing. Uh, we don't need to shout about it. Um, 
it's not something that we want any any um, praise for. It's something that we feel as though uh, had to be done as a group. We weren't we weren't forced into it at all from the club. That that wasn't the case at all. It came from the players themselves, um, and we just felt as though as footballers that that represent Brighton. Uh, we felt as though we should be helping our community and, and that's what we're trying to do. Do you feel pro Glenn, the players in general, they've stepped up to the plate, they've been challenged somewhat hypocritically by certain people who are not willing to make the same sacrifice. But nonetheless, they've given, they will continue to give. And as we both know, as Dan Duncan as well, football players do a lot in terms of charitable um, donations outside of a crisis like this anyway. Um, and I guess, yeah, I, 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 when you're stuck at home, unable to do your job, unable to train with your teammates and waiting for things to move on and hope that people are safe and well, making those contributions must make you feel quite proud. I don't think it was ever in doubt personally that, that that football was going to pull together to 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 do what they could in in this circumstance because at the end of the day um, we we're, we're nothing with without the football clubs and and without the community around those football clubs i.e. the fans and and the people in the city so it was never never a question was doing nothing uh, and like you say a, a lot of footballers already do a lot in the community that, that goes unseen and unheard of. Um, yeah, so it, I suppose, yeah, it, it does make me proud that, that we we can pull together as one sort of big football family and, and help everyone else and, and do our little bit. Let's talk about what happens next from football from the perspective of playing the sport, Glenn. Um, are you in the camp that feels that we should complete this season? Or do you believe that there's a, there's a more sensible solution would be to say, right, football can't be played for a while. Um, there are far more important things happening in, in the country. Um, to get it to be played is going to require some extraordinary setup where footballers go and, and, and support staff are sealed away in a training camp and, and given multiple COVID-19 tests. Um, games played behind closed doors, medical staff taken to those those places to um, cover the matches, other emergency staff there. And and really the more rational solution is to say, well, do what um, the Belgians have done and what Scotland is heading towards and say that this season's over. Uh, let's prepare to start the next season when we can play again. That obviously will change from, from person to person and club to club that you ask. Um I think that we should try and uphold the the competition and we should try and finish it, but it's got to be very, very sensible. And and if that can't be done, then I think there's got to be a cut off at some point where we we have to hold our hands up and just say that the health and the safety of of not only the footballers, but just the general public is is more important than the 2019-2020 season. Um, But listen, I think we're going to leave that a little while and see and see how this pandemic pans out a little bit for a little bit longer before we have to rush to any decision um but yeah it, it would be good to 
to try and finish it because I, I think that is the only way, fair way to do it. Uh, but like I say, it's got to be done really sensibly and, and people's health has got to come first and foremost. What do you think would be a realistic cut-off? Because it, we've seen this week the Dutch government saying there will be no football um, either in stadiums or behind closed doors until September 1st, which I think is going to result in the KMVB calling their league because they were already of the of the of a similar persuasion to Belgium and thinking, well, the broadcast revenues aren't high enough for us. It makes more economic sense to to stop the league. I think that that really boils down to what is after the Premier League. Obviously, the Euros has been moved uh, from this summer until next summer, and and there'll be a cut-off to when that can can sort of start and the Premier League can end. Uh, and it, it's just, it, it's, I don't think it's, it's really too big a case for when we can get back started, but it's more of a case what that what comes next. And from a player's perspective, I do worry about burnout because at the moment, if, if we do manage to finish this season, uh, players are going to get back fit. We're going to finish this season. What is it? Eight, nine games. Um, we're going to have a really short break. Uh, by a short break, I'm mean, imagine it to be maybe two to three weeks, uh, right back into another season. And then for those lucky enough to represent their countries, they are going to have a, a really short break and then go right into the Euros another week or so, if that, depending on how far they get in the tournament. And they're going right into another season. So it, it, it's going to be very physically difficult uh, for the players. And I don't mean to sound like I'm, I'm, I'm sort of playing the violin on the players' behalf, but I mean, we are humans at the end of the day and people are going to get injured. And if we want to keep the Premier League to the high standard that it is, then we need players that are, that are fit and rested and ready to go. And, and that goes for the Euros next year as well. We don't want to see some of the world's best players going into the, the tournament fatigued. Glenn, there's never going to be a no-risk situation now, given the situation we're in. Um, and in a way, players will be asked to go back out on the pitch at some point, knowing there is a risk of the virus still being present, of someone being infected, and then what leads on from that. I mean, how does that... Because it's a very difficult position to be put in. How does that fit with you as a player to be asked to go out and play if that's the case, knowing that there is, okay, a minimal risk um, with regards to someone's health. Well, like I mentioned earlier on the pod, um, I had a teammate that is living with his elderly parents who have health issues. And obviously for him, that's going to be a big problem when it comes to, to, to playing again. And I think that we... We need to make sure that we are over this pandemic before we resume. And like I say, not only for the players, but for the fans, um, whether fans are allowed in the stadium or not, um, that, that remains to be seen. Personally, I think we should wait until the fans are allowed back in the stadium because football is nothing without the fans. Um, I caught a few of the Italian games uh, before, before the closure with teams playing with no fans. And it was, it was a strange, a very strange watch. And it took me back to my reserve team game, uh, days. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's 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 just really just time's going to tell, isn't it? We we went on a um, 
on sort of a little international mini break to Tenerife uh, as a sort of squad building, a little training getaway in some sunshine in February. And I can't remember the date exactly, but getting back on the plane, we found out that that was the first case that the UK had had. And it was in Brighton, funnily enough. And um, from then until the game being called off against Arsenal, I just don't think that we realised how quickly this was going to take over and change our lives. So who knows what the future holds? What, what's been said to you, we know the Premier League had uh, this discussion last Friday about potential scheduling and potential ways of restarting the season. What, if anything, has been said to you as players about when the club is expecting to be playing again? Uh, so, so we we we've got a, a date that that we we're going to try and resume training. Uh, obviously, it, it's after the the lockdown, uh, so it's it's after the seventh of May, and then hopefully we can regain some structure, and the the country can sort of reopen to a certain extent, and we can start playing. Uh, not playing, sorry, we can start training together. Therefore, gaining fitness and and be, and be ready to go when when the Premier League and, and the FA and the governing bodies think that it, it, it's correct and safe to do so. So, so the best case scenario is end of early May, end of, if the lockdown ends as, as scheduled at present, you go into training with the idea that would be a three to four week training period, start playing beginning of June. Yeah, I mean, they, they haven't run the exact date past us yet when, when we would start playing. But yeah, I believe it to be around about uh, sort of late May, early June, uh, hopefully. And, and like we say, who knows if, if this, this, this current three-week lockdown is going to be extended or not. It remains to be seen, but all we can do is put plans in place to to reconvene when we can. Um, but... Let, let let's just see. I mean, we we never foreseen this coming to such a such a degree. How do you think? I mean, you, you mentioned playing reserve games and 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 watching those games from Italy, the behind closed doors games. The the Germans are calling them ghost games, which I think is the best description I've heard of having watched some of them myself on TV. And and my feeling is it's it's a bit like watching pre-season training sessions. You know, there's there's yeah. plenty of technical quality on the pitch, but it just doesn't feel right as a football match. How, how do you think, assuming that's the way we're going to go back, and I think that is if we are going to finish this season, it's going to be with ghost games behind closed doors. How do you think that's going to affect the football on the pitch? It's going to change it. It, it's going to be obviously there's not going to be any advantage to a home or away game necessarily um, you usually have your home fans sort of roaring you on getting behind you being that 12th man that that isn't going to be a thing anymore um, it's it's going to be extremely difficult It's I think for some people it's going to be difficult to get up for the game um, I think if you speak to any footballer the way they approach a reserve game to, to a, a, a a Premier League game with with a full house is is completely different. And even though we understand that it'll be a Premier League game and, and the points will count, it's going to be very eerie walking into empty stadiums and 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 let let's be honest, performing to nobody. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
because that that is that is why we all wanted to be footballers in the first place. You 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 fell in love with the game. You wanted to play in front of big crowds. You wanted to impress lots of people, and you will be able to do that on TV. But when you can't see that, it's it, it's going to be difficult to get that across to yourself. I think, but we will as as footballers be as as professional as we we always are, and 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 try and put our best foot forward. And, and obviously, there'll be things at stake. And if we reconvene Brighton. We are in sort of a relegation fight, and and we'll have to we'll have to try and pick up as many points as possible to 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 get out of that scrap we're in, and and hopefully we can do that and and move on and look towards the next season. It's a strange psychological situation because, as you say, you'll be performing to nobody, but potentially performing to millions. <laughs> Probably more than ever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, but this 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 is also my worry that if if fans aren't allowed in the ground, that that people are gonna get together outside the ground, and and if not yeah. outside the ground, they're definitely gonna get together to watch the game. So it, it's gonna it's gonna encourage socialising um, of a different sort. So yeah, I, I just I just think it, it's best for for football in general um, to wait until everyone can be in that stadium and enjoy that first game back um, and and make it a real carnival atmosphere. But like like we've said it a few times, it, it's got to be safe for everyone. I, I I agree with you on that entirely. I think it's going to be a real problem the post games and and it's clearly being driven by financial concerns and you see the top leagues are the ones who want to do it to to secure the broadcast revenue but like from a technical perspective in terms of you say you're going into a relegation battle going back into relegation battle I think Brighton have got five home games so you're going to lose one of your home game advantage from not having fans in the stadium if they go that way as Graham Potter and the coaching staff started to talk to you about how you play in a closed door situation and the way you respond to it and how you take it, try and take advantage of it, whether you play a different kind of football because you don't have the crowd pressuring the referee, you don't you don't have a lot of the the elements that that have a psychological influence on a football match in in normal circumstances. We haven't touched on that yet, but. I think if anything, it would probably benefit fit us as 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 a group um, because of the way we play football. Um, we 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 try and play a, a possession based game, which obviously when you're away and it's working, it's really good to hear the crowd groans. But sometimes <laughs> it's 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 a slow build up, and um, crowds can can get impatient with you. Uh, sometimes our home fans want us to get forward a little bit quicker um so i think that we'll be able to play play our way w- without the pressure of, of 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 anyone there um and we'll be able to just keep doing it over and over again and and obviously the gaffer um <clears throat> and the coach and staff will be able to get their points of view across on the pitch much easier <laughs> than trying to com- compete with uh 25 <laughs> 30,000 voices uh so yeah it, it could turn the game even more tactical Find Billy Reid will be able to get his views across <laughs> much yeah. easier as well, Glenn. <laughs> yeah, he will. But he does. He does do quite well against twenty-five thousand. Let me tell he you. He does. He does. To be fair, I mean, um, who, who in the te- who in the technical staff and on the team are going to have to be censored for the um, for the microphones? <laughs> well, then, then yeah. I mean, 
I know all the players are going to have to be censored, especially if there's <laughs> any uh, if there's any close up camera footage um, of a decision going against us and, and frustration getting the better of us, uh, especially with the situation we're in. So um, we might be hearing a lot of beeps on TV. <laughs> I tell you what, we might even hear the voice of VAR. <laughs> yeah. It'll be so quiet. Hopefully, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, there's obviously, um, and I think this is partly what's motivated Germany and Austria to, um, I wouldn't say rush, but certainly they've uh, become the first two major countries to reintroduce training and schedule league matches and everything else. And it's almost because they see football as, well, it's not almost, it is because they see football as a great unifier uh, for the countries in a time of this kind of crisis. There seems to be a pressure um, on football, footballers, and football as a game to, if you like, almost bring back people together when they've been in a situation where um, life has been difficult and the things that they love the most uh, are taken away from them. So I just wonder if, um, you know, there's pressure on football and footballers to do that because uh, it's a way of, if you like, distracting the country and the citizens from what they have been suffering in terms of uh, missing out on football. Yeah, I was reading, funny enough, some reports from Germany saying that lockdown is is easier with football. Um, I totally agree. It will be. Um, it, it's, it's difficult when there's nothing on TV. Uh, at least it'll give us something to look forward to and, and to switch on and to, to tune into. Um, but like we've said many times, it, it, it's got to be safety first um, for the players as well as well as the, the, the staff. Um, obviously, Germany are, are reintroducing training. I think they're reintroducing in fours, fives, sixes and they're sort of pinging balls to each other over, over a certain distance and, and sort of get, getting their feel for the ball back. But But not coming together so I mean there are there are things that we can do but we obviously need the government here in the UK to, to okay that before we can go back to the training grounds and, and, and start any training like that um, but I'm sure that'll be after the, the, the this lockdown and then how fast it will be before we, we can train as a group who knows So you've been out in the back garden hitting the target in the, in the, the nets or are you feeling a little bit less pressure as a striker with regards to um, someone who knows what he's got to do and is under pressure to do it? Yeah, I think I think the only pressure I really take any notice of is the pressure that I put on myself. And I have found in this lockdown and in these past few weeks that I am probably more relaxed in, in my life in general than... Um, than what I am when I'm playing football. Um, like I say, I, I put a, a big amount of pressure on myself to, to to score goals, and if I don't do that, I'm I'm disappointed. 
but I have been in the back garden. I have my seven-year-old daughter in goal, and I've been doing some confidence-building drills. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know you don't sound that relaxed when you're under Kurt Waitrose, so I'm pleased you're getting some... Uh relaxation scoring goals against three girl no, do, you know, <laughs> but, do you know what for, for, for all all this um the the negativity that this brought this um this pandemic has brought i really think that it will be a time we look look back on in our lives and, and our children uh, are really thankful for in, in in a roundabout way that they got to spend time with their their mum and dad um without having to rush off to work or without life getting in the way so to speak so i think even though it's very unfortunate circumstances, I think that, that people and, and families will look back with, with some fondness in, in years to come, hopefully. That's certainly the way my dog feels. <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> he's, become, he's become the focal point of our family day, taking him for a walk uh, with the family and uh, getting all of our attention, which has been brilliant. Just one last question on, you know, again, the whole situation we find ourselves in. Um, can you do, you, do you think about it? Do you uh, think about it when you go to sleep at night? Do you think, what's it going to be like going out on the pitch again? And, and, and you know, feeling that adrenaline pumping and, and just thinking, oh, we're back. Yeah, I do. I do. I do think about it every now and again. Uh, but I think as soon as we're back, sort of two, three weeks, it'll be. It'll feel like we've never been away. And I'm just trying to take this time to 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 um, to relax and and like I say, to spend time with my my children and my wife, um, and just just live in the moment. Really, not 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 rush time away. Um, and when we get back, we, we, it'll be it'll be brilliant. It'll be a fantastic day. Like I say, hopefully it'll be like a carnival atmosphere for everyone. But until then, uh, we've just got to take each day as it comes. Glenn, this is the, the Transfer Window podcast. Um, I think you're the first current professional we've had on since football stopped. And we've spent a lot of time discussing how the pandemic and the financial impact on football is going to affect uh, the transfer market and player contracts. What, what's your feeling and what's the discussion amongst um, you and your colleagues as to what the next window will be like and how, how this is going to affect, um, I guess, your, you know, your careers going forward in terms, I think Brighton have two players who are out of contract at the end of the season, so they will, they'll have that, that question of whether they um, carry on beyond June 30th if required to. Um, and then, you know, there'll be various players who are, as ever, in the attention of other clubs and been considering whether there would be moves away. Um, is, is there a feeling that this is going to make a massive difference to um, switches between clubs and, and contracts in the future? Well, I think that depends a lot on if we manage to finish this season and, and and like we've touched on whether the TV revenue is actually paid to the clubs um, as far as players um, I think contracts will be worded uh, very differently from now on um, they'll include pandemic <laughs> on, on, on every page um, I also think that, that football clubs will run 
their football clubs very differently. I'm sure they'll have more cash in the bank uh, for a rainy day, should we say, rather than living week to week uh, and, and thinking that nothing can hamper that. Um, as we can see, a, lo- a lot of football clubs are struggling now. Uh, and obviously we, we, we see Premier League teams um, referring, which is, is arguably the richest competition in the world. Um, so how it's affecting the lower league clubs is it's uh, it's it's going to be um it's going to be really difficult for them and and I'm I'm sure we'll we'll lose some clubs along the way hope hopefully the money can trickle down from the top down to the bottom and and, and help those those clubs and those those players out um but yeah I think I think football will change from from here on in uh, obviously we're still going to have huge transfer fees from the massive clubs with, with with the with the big followings and, and the big revenues, uh, so sort of your Real Madrid, your Barcelona's, your Manchester United's, but I think as far as as some clubs are concerned, we 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 won't be spending the the amount of money that that maybe has been spent in the past, and uh, I think football clubs will be run maybe a little bit more conservatively. And from your own perspective, since you were last on the podcast, you you earned yourself a new contract at, at Brighton. Um, congratulations on that! But that must, from from where we are now, that must there must be a sense of relief that you have that in place and don't have to go into um, a market as a free agent where there is going to be less money um, on offer from, in particular, uh, uh, championship clubs. Yeah, from a personal point of view, um, it, that, that this was my number one choice. This is what I wanted to do. I wanted to stay and prolong my career with this club. And, and thankfully, Graham Potter, the manager, uh, was under the same same sort of thinking. And, and we came to quite an amicable, quick decision. And yeah, um, when I did sign, I obviously didn't foresee this coming. But but now I have, obviously, I'm... I'm, I'm I'm even more thankful to be to be under contract um, because, yeah, to be perfectly honest, it, I suppose it could have been the end of my career. It's gone the wrong way. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think I think unlikely, but yeah, you're right. It, it could have. It, it would be a bad scenario to go into, and I, I think also people aren't aware of the degree of offers you had in January before you signed because you, you're telling us that this was your first choice and. Um, I think people are aware the the caliber of club who were trying to sign you in that January window. I believe you had a, you had serious interest from Celtic, for example, and and um, some other Premier League clubs. Yeah, there was there was a there was a little bit of interest. Um, obviously, I finished uh, last season as Brighton's top scorer in the Premier League. Um, this first half season hadn't gone as well as I'd have hoped. Uh, obviously, it's under a new regime and things are different. Uh, the style of play is different, but I still had suitors. Um, but like I say, my, my number one choice was to stay with Brighton. Uh, and I'm really happy, um, not only at the club, but in the city. Um, and I, I look forward to to hopefully adding to more great memories at, at, at this club and, and hopefully uh, continuing to take it forward and, and, and leave it in an even better better place uh, come come the end of my current contract. Celtic have still got the number 17 jersey waiting for you, son. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> we'll make sure that's still there when your Brighton contract ends. 
We're going to move on to some uh, of the news, of course, because we're very, very uh, big on the news on the Transfer Window podcast. And, of course, most of it has come out of the northeast this week, where PCP Partners, led by Amanda Staveley and backed by the richest family, if not the richest man in the world, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, are close to agreeing a deal to buy Newcastle United. Yeah, I've talked to someone involved with the consortium who has um, an agreement in place to buy Newcastle United. Um, Their version of events is that this is an irrevocable deal in the sense that Mike Ashley can't now back out of it. He's he's, um, contractually obliged to go through with it if they receive... um, Premier League approval in terms of the directors that they wish to appoint and in terms of their financial plan for the club. It's um, a, a cash deal, straight cash deal of around £300 million, which would allow Ashley to come out with a considerable profit on uh, the sum he paid for the club um, several years ago. Um, there will be substantial changes down the line to Newcastle United if, if this group, so it's 10% Amanda Staveley's uh, PCP Capital, 10% the Rubin brothers with Jamie Rubin coming on board as a director, and then 80% of the, the cash is coming from the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia with their chief executive Yasser al-Rumayan becoming the chairman of the club. I'm told that PCP will run it. Um, that the, they will be appointed to, to look after the club, told that Steve Bruce will remain in charge as manager um, to at least to begin with. He will be given the opportunity to prove um, that he is as good a manager as as they expect, can keep, retain the position in the Premier League and, and go forward from there. And that there will be very significant investment in turning them into a, a, a club that can go to the top uh, was the, the the quote I was given um, in terms of English football? So um, I'm mean, I'm intrigued. I mean, this obviously is the biggest story of of the the period in which we've had no football, and it's it has the potential if um, the people involved are are as good um, to their word of what they intend to do with Newcastle United, of shaking the English game up and potentially the European game up in the same way as as when Abu Dhabi bought Manchester City um, and when Qatar um, bought Paris Saint-Germain. I'm intrigued to, to hear what um, Glenn's opinion of the, of the takeover is and whether he thinks it's a good thing for the game that we have another nation um, buying a football club in the way that Manchester City have, and, and which has obviously been a con- controversial, a significant controversial element to it over the last few years in terms of rule breaking, financial fair play breaking, and the and the various um, uh, legal challenges they've faced um, as a result of the actions that state took when taking control of a of a Premier League football club. Well, without sort of looking too much into the politics behind the move. I think that it's it's good for the Premier League and it'll open up sort of a different revenue stream and, and more interest from another part of the world. Um, I think as far as Newcastle fans 
are concerned. Um, they are delighted to, to be in this position, uh, as I've seen all over Twitter and Instagram. Um, and I think it, it'll be it'll be an exciting time for, for, for Newcastle. Um, growing up, obviously Newcastle were, were, were a huge club back then with Kevin Keegan in charge uh, in my childhood. So I, I remember them with very fond memories and I think they'll be looking to get back to sort of that 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 scenario they were in back then when they were pushing for the title. Um, and I, I think it'll be good to have another contender for the Premier League. Obviously, Liverpool have run away with it this year um, and hopefully Newcastle can invest and, and, and get the squad that sort of the Geordie fan base believe they should have. Their fans are a second to none in the Premier League and... And if, if they can get the right right eleven, the, the, the right team on, on the pitch, then I think it can only be good for the Premier League to have possibly another contender. In a global sense, though, Glenn, I, I, given that the two nation states who currently own football clubs in, in Europe, in Manchester City and PSG, are you surprised Newcastle United? Saudi Arabia is actually the most rich family valued at $1.7 trillion should go for Newcastle United. Can you see something here that we're not seeing or that we've yet to see in terms of what they think about Newcastle's potential or viability? Because, as I said, in terms of City and Paris Saint-Germain, they've gone in there and put their money in and won title after title. Yeah, and I think obviously when when they uh, went to Paris, they bought the 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 biggest team in France, and have possibly found that transition easier. Um, and I think that they've they've maybe looked at the situation in England and, and felt as though they've they've wanted maybe slightly more of a challenge. But I'm sure they've done their homework and they understand that that Newcastle City lives and breathes football. It it it's what the 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 city is actually built on. Um, the stadium is right in the city centre. Um, I, I, I just think, I, I personally think it's, it's, it's a fantastic fit. And if, if, if you can get Newcastle playing, then I just think it could be could be an amazing, amazing situation uh, for them to find themselves in because it, I think it maybe gets forgotten about a little bit Newcastle, but it's 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 a huge city uh, with with huge support and and it's a powerhouse of a club. I mean, that's one of the things that was explained to me by the the, the people involved. Is it, it it's a single club city, the the size of the fan base, the size of the stadium, um, the history of the club were all attractive. Um, and, and things that Amanda Stavely of PCP sold to Saudi Arabia as this being the right club to invest in. But from a from a footballer's perspective, in ter- terms of your your knowledge of the game, and this is obviously a team that you played against on multiple occasions, how much work does it take to get a club like that with the squad they have at present, the training ground they have at present, status they have, to the very top of the English game. Well, that that, that is the uh, that is the question, isn't it? But I'm, I'm sure that the the group will have a, a plan in place. Um, 
I personally believe with with three or four signings that it can, it can completely change the outlook of the club. It, it's obviously there's been a, a lot of press on who's going to be the man to 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 lead them that way, and and I hope that that Steve Bruce gets that opportunity because I think he's done a fantastic job with the group he's got, and I think he deserves that chance to to be able to go and spend in the transfer market and, and bring um, better players in to 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 make the club stronger. What, what do you think the best strategy is? Do you, is? Is the way to go in a scenario like that where you've got a backer who's richer than anyone else, is it to go the Manchester City route and try and buy the best players in the world, which is what City did, albeit they could only pick from a certain age range and they could only pick players who, who hadn't quite reached the top of the game and attract them with money? Or is it to take a strategy like Wolves have and and try and... Get recruit very intelligently from lesser markets players who are able to um, perform above the level you'd expect for the money you're paying for them in the Premier League. Yeah, I mean that that is is a question for for the owners of the football club really whether they're it, it's it's a, a long term project with financial gain or whether it's a a short term project with with success in mind. Um, Personally, I think it'll, it may be a balance of both. Um, I think they will have to pay. I think um, that players aren't generally attracted to Newcastle as much. Uh, its links to to the South aren't as good, which is what uh, I think a lot of foreign players look for immediately. How close is the, is the club to, to to London? It <laughs> seems in 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 in. Um, in, in things that I've heard from, from from foreign players come to this country, um, but yeah, I, I think that once once the the players find out about the, the city and the, and the stadium, that that they will want to go there. And when they hear the plans that the owners have got to 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 take Newcastle to the top, uh, as far as we, we we we're aware, that people will go there. And I think they'll they'll build um, a fantastic squad and 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 hopefully one like I say that challenges for the Premier League. Here's an idea. I was, I was talking about this with a, a technical director of a Champions League club the other day. And he said to me, if he was in charge of Newcastle United at present, where they've got a, a poor standard of training ground and it's something you have to improve, what he would suggest to the owners is you build a training ground outside London and you attract players by telling them you can live near London, train there, and you fly up to Newcastle for the games. How does that sound to you as a proposal? That is some proposal, isn't it? Um, I'm not I sure that Jordi Faisal would have that, Duncan. Yeah, I, win I the, if they win the games, if they win the games, I can obviously see see the 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 thinking behind that comment, but. Like Ian's just said, that I, I can't see the Newcastle fans being on board with the cities, uh, with with the players not living in the city and being part of the the culture up yeah. there and 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 being part of the community because I think that is what Newcastle's built on. Here's my proposal, Duncan. Neymar on the left, Ronaldo <laughs> on the right, Messi as a ten, and Glenn Murray as nine. How many goals does the man score? I think that would be easy then. That they would make it easy. I wouldn't have to move. I would move even less. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm asking how many goals would you score? 
in that in that four, how many goals would Glenn Murray score? I, I with think those I three think, guys I think you? that three would probably get so frustrated with me that ask for me to be dropped. <laughs> 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 I'm not sure about that. Come on, let's let's have a little bit of uh, faith in yourself here. You've got the goal scoring touch. Those guys have got the assist touch. I set that up, and I welcome all the listeners to um, give us a uh, goals per season uh, average or ratio <laughs> for Glenn Murray being supported by Neymar, Ronaldo, and Leo Messi. Duncan, what would your goals per season average oh, my be? goals per season be with those three supporting me? Duncan could even yeah. score goals in that front four. Duncan, <laughs> Duncan's, Duncan's a left back, by the way, Glenn. Uh, if you can't score goals in that front four, then you'll never score goals. <laughs> well, what I can say is if we put Ian McGarry in that front four, that I, I would watch Ian McGarry fighting with all three of them to, to take control of the ball and take the penalties ahead of everyone else because that was his main skill on the football field. Mind, uh, mind you, mind you I, th- I think they might struggle with your accent. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. I, I would probably score about 50 a season. Thank you very much. Gentlemen, gentlemen, what a great discussion um, in difficult times. Uh, I would like to draw this transfer window podcast to a close with a joyful, joyful um, question, which is, um, what has been the most enjoyable moment you've ever experienced in football? It can be your own, it can be watching, or it can be... Um, yeah, scoring goals otherwise. Glenn, I'm going to ask you first because I, I think I know what Duncan says first. I'm going to pick a moment from being a young boy, uh, a fan of football, and going to the new camp to watch Manchester United versus Bayern Munich in the 99, if I'm right, European Cup final, Champions League final. And seeing Ole Gunnar Solskjaer score to make it 2-1 in the, uh, what was it, the 93rd, the 94th minute? I can't, was it 97th? 93rd minute, mate. 93rd minute and just the, 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 the I don't know, the relief, the, the uh, everything. All the it wasn't a relief, it was one. the absolute euphoria. Yeah, euphoria. That's what it was. I mean, people, it was incredible. People, People were falling down seats. People were hugging each other, kissing each other. Who'd never met each other before. It was just, it was just the most Where crazy. Were you Glenn? And you were fifteen, there. I think I was. I think oh, it was fifteen. That's magnificent. And well, it was just probably the I, best footballing moment ever for me. I was running up and down the press box, and no one and the Catalan journalists were saying, "Sit down, sit down." I was like, "No, I'm not going to sit down because it's incredible." <laughs> It was incredible. It was just it the, was. the noise in the stadium was. was just phenomenal. And just uh, for me, the day out, uh, the, the, everything was just, uh, yeah, possibly one of the best days of my life. Magnificent. Duncan, let's talk about Dundee United. <laughs> Who did you guess? Um, I'm gonna go, <laughs> I have go no for, idea. <laughs> I'll go for two. One is 1983. Uh, Dundee United winning the Scottish Premier League title on the, the final day of the season at Dens Park. Um, I was there in the Dundee end, which was all Dundee United fans anyway. Um, and 
as I've said in this podcast before, not only our only title, but the most exciting finish to a Scottish season ever and that three teams were all capable of winning it on the final day. Um, and we, we did it 2-1. And then as a, as a football journalist, my favourite memory remains the first World Cup I covered um, and South Korea uh, coming back from a goal down to Loved beat that. Italy 2-1 um, with some of the best supporters, the noisiest supporters I've ever heard and brilliant, brilliant management from Goose Hiddink um, who just kept putting strikers on as Italy put on more defenders and uh, and eventually and, overran them. And, 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 and also the most bent referee in history. No, that was the Italian. That was the Italian accusation. It was the next game. The next game was when they got the referees in, in their favour. But it, it was um, it was also one of the best parties after a football match I've ever been at. Seoul was sensational at that. Country. It was. It was. This has been the Transfer Window podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and please do uh, continue the debate with us on our social media channels, which are. Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Transfer Podcast. Uh, you can do so obviously individually with Duncan at Duncan Castles, with uh, Glenn, who's at GM Understroke 83, and with myself, who's at Garbo SJ. I'd like to say um, just before we go, big thanks to Duncan and also to um, Glenn Murray, who has given us time tonight. And uh, we uh, appreciate that very much, Glenn, and hope to um, have you back very soon on the Transfer Window podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you.